The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Welcome back to another episode of Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. I'm your host, Ilya Friedman, and I'm pleased to announce a new sponsor of the show, Zeiss Camera Lenses. In today's episode, I'm going to chat with uh, Zeiss, actually their, their representative, the head of cinema sales for North America, and we're going to talk quite a bit about the state of the industry and how their lenses are being used for television and motion pictures. And without further ado, here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Joining me now is Snehal Patel of Zeiss. Snehal, welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Hey, Ilya, what's going on? Thanks for having me. Hey, uh, Snehal, you are one of my oldest friends in this business. I've known you a very long time, and you have been involved in so many things and worked in so many different facets. Tell everyone what your job title is over at Zeiss and and what you do for them. Oh, wow. Well, um, I am the head of cinema sales for Zeiss, and my territory is North and South America. So we work with the team that handles everything from Canada down to Brazil. And this means, uh, you know, all the sales activities, contacts with the community, working with cinematographers, which is my favorite part. Let, let's talk a little bit about that. Let, let, you know, uh, just name a few of the cinematographers who are out there and what they're shooting right now with, with Zeiss lenses. I know there's a lot. Zeiss is a, oh a God, major so player in, in this space. <laughs> but I don't know, name, name a couple, two or three, maybe. Two or three. Yeah. Uh, we well, should look for Reed Morano. I mean, mm-hmm. she's uh, doing fantastic stuff and she's a big fan of Zeiss. You know, she likes Zeiss Master Anamorphics, for example. Um, Q Tran, Queen Tran. Oh yeah, I can. Yeah, yeah. she Queen is doing. Um, you know, she did Made, uh, Minx, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. She's a fan of the Supremes. We did a, a short film with her uh, called Stucco, which uh, it was a big hit. Actually, it's a horror short, and, and that was that meant went the festival rounds, and actually, it's a big hit online as well now. She's a real friend of the show, and she's been on the show, I, I think, three times now. So, what? Yeah, I she's know. been on three times. That's two awesome. or three. I, I I can't recall exactly, she's but amazing. I, yeah, I know she's been on. So. Uh, John Joffin is a, a really big fan. Him and Alicia Robbins worked on a show that's going to come out soon called Breathe. That's the working title, and they used uh, Zeiss Radiance lenses. John Joffin's a really big big fan of both the Supremes and the Radiance lenses. Alicia Robbins? Alicia Robbins. Yeah, she's going to be here on Saturday, actually, just as a small world. Break. Oh, look yeah. at that. Yeah. yeah we have... So we're working with her right now. Oh, that's cool. On the launch of our 15 millimeter Supreme lens. So mm. we're actually shooting with her next Wednesday. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it's yeah, a the, small world. I will I will talk to her about it on Saturday when I see her. That's great. Good. That's awesome. Be like, hey, I heard this secret thing, yeah. you know? I, you, well, okay, wait a second. So you dropped a little bit of, bu- of a bomb here. The 15 millimeter Supreme Prime, that's that's brand new. Yeah, everyone's been waiting for that. So um, actually, Robert McLaughlin was testing with it through Otto Nemens uh, on American Gigolo, and he's just loving it. So we, I have a couple of prototypes 
And we've been just kind of showing them around to our, our top rental houses mm-hmm. to give it a, them a tease. We'll do a proper launch with PR. And of course, since Hot Rod is a, a dealer as well, you're going to be getting training and information early April. And then we'll have it at NAB so people can actually look at it. Uh, it's a great lens. It's rectilinear. It's clean. It's beautiful. It's uh, T18. T18 and, and, of course, full frame because it's a yeah. Supreme Prime lens. Correct. Will, will you be making a Radiance version of this as well? If it's popular, yeah, we yeah. can do that. Right now, the Radiance line has 18 to 135. There's 11 focal lengths, all T15. And then now the Supreme line has now will have 14 lenses. And I'm just going to editorialize a minute here too. For the, our listeners who are less technical, and this is a bit of a technical episode of the show, the Radiance version of Supreme Prime, Supreme Prime is being gorgeous, high-speed, full-frame lenses made by Zeiss, which are being used on all kinds of uh, massive productions the world over. Yes. Uh, there's a second series, which are mechanically the same, but optically have different coatings, and so that they create more flares, or more sort of a different style of flare, which uh, some people really like. It's a, it's a heavier flare effect. And I know you and I have talked about it a lot, and I came and had the, the wonderful demo over at your center in Sherman Oaks. And could you just plug a little bit about this? Because anyone... In the sound of my voice, if you're interested in learning more about, you know, Zeiss lenses, of course you can come to Hot Rod Cameras, but Zeiss has their own facility in Sherman Oaks and it's gorgeous. Uh, Snail, tell us about your cool place of business and where you spend much of your time. Well, first of all, I'm touched because it means a lot to hear you say that. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's our Cinema Lens Demo Center. And basically what we do is we have a center, it's a playground for cinematographers. They come in for a couple of hours, two to three hours, and we do a demo and show them, you know, lenses. They can look at lenses on cameras because we have a prep area like a rental house. We have a small theater. We have historical items from history, like from both photography and cinema there. I have a camera from 1915 from Pathé, for example. And it's in a high-rise building, so it's a little different than what you'd expect. It's not a walk-in place, you know, uh, that's just uh, open to the public. You have to make an appointment to come in. You get very personalized service, essentially. But it's a way for a cinematographer to start to understand our technology and our lenses and then try stuff out. They can try out whatever camera lens combination they want. We keep all the most popular cinema cameras there in rotation. And we even have the small little pocket cameras and DSLRs and all that. And of course, even uh, stills lenses. So it's a lot of fun. It's, It's a good time. And just like you said, you know, people come can come in and take a look at Supremes. They can take a look at Radiance. Some people use both on shows, like Tobias Schleichler used both on The Atom Project, which is, of course, a huge movie on Netflix right now. Mm. It's a lot of fun. It's actually a really great. I just sent him an email today. It's such a great looking show, and it's it's a, it's a fun family film. Um, the kid that's in it, like killed it like what great acting he did playing the the, the young ryan reynolds oh my god like i was like they literally just cloned ryan reynolds because (laughs) the kid talked exactly i'm i keep calling him kid i'm sorry i don't know the actor's name but he's fantastic i mean he's got a long career in front of him uh but tobias is a is a consummate professional a true artist uh the fact that he thought that look i'm gonna use this cleaner look with the supremes for most of the film and then when I want some interesting characteristics with flares outdoor and stuff I pop in and I day play the the radiance that also happened on Hulu's show Dope Sick mm. and then you know some people like John Joffa and Alicia Robbins lean into it and they went all radiance for for their show so it just depends on taste really Fargo season four was radiance as well 
Uh, that was the primary lens. You know, and, and I say primary lens because you and I both know that sometimes there's also Zooms used too, right? So a lot, sure. of, a lot of times it's our Zooms nowadays, the Cinema Zoom, CZ2s, 15 to 30, 20 to 80, and 70 to 200. But, you know, you can mix other lenses in there. Some people use Ingenue. Some people use uh, Fuji, for example. The, the, the Premistas are a popular combination with the Supremes as well. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think that's awesome that whatever paintbrush the artist wants to use, we respect, you know. So I think it's great. I want to kind of transition a little bit here into talking about, because I don't think there's too many people in the world who would be better at explaining sort of the fundamental differences between DSLR lenses and cinema lenses. And I know there's some very obvious things, like there's some mechanical differences, but I know the number one thing and the thing that a lot of YouTubers in particular love to talk about is like, oh, what are, what are the optical or visual differences between these things? And uh, Snail, you take it away. You, what, what do you tell people? Because Zeiss is one of these companies that has the highest end cinema lenses and very high end uh, DSLR lenses. And I know that that sometimes one informs the other and inspires the other. Take it away. Tell us about the differences, what one would expect as far as the difference between DSLR and cinema. Sure. Absolutely. Um, first of all, yes. Yeah, Zeiss is one of those companies that actually owns IP when it comes to optical design. So there's not a lot of companies that actually own their own IP, which is meaning that the optical designs themselves. How do you line up the convex lenses with the concave lenses and how many pieces of glass are there? What position are they put in? How far apart are they in space to create different focal lengths, different magnifications? And then how, what does that image look like that results from that? Um, you know, what are, what's the bend in the corners? What's the CA in the, in the edges? What kind of coverage does it give? All that stuff is, is all design. And it takes a long time actually to create optical designs. So absolutely, optical designs, you know, when you have a large company with, like Zeiss with 30,000 employees, we definitely share the optical design between different types of products. So your microscopes, your telescopes, binoculars, photo lenses, cinema lenses, they can share optical designs or pieces of optical designs or at least the, the methodology of how things are being created. And photo and cinema is actually very, very similar. The cinema lens, the number one thing which Zeiss does now, which is very evident in the ultra primes, that was a design around 27, 28 years ago. The concept with the ultra primes was, let's now make a lens where you don't have to, when you sell it to Denny Claremont and Otto Nemmons, they don't have to use a T-stop machine to actually mark the lenses and redo the irises for you. Okay, uh, they don't have to adapt the mechanics of the focus to make it actually work with a proper follow focus system, right? Let's make it so that when you sell this lens, it's there's some standardization. So the Ultra Primes is a very good example because when the first set came out, they're all 95 front diameter. All the focus and iris rings were in the exact same position. All the gear pitches were 0.8. The iris actually on the Ultra Primes was designed so that each lens you would have the same amount of turn to open up and close down because. Back Back then they did that a lot. They put their hand on the iris and they would iris open and close as they maybe went from window to interior of a house, right? Nowadays, of course, we hand over a remote to the DIT station and either the cinematographer or the DIT is one irising, opening or closing. But back then they did it by hand. So if you wanted to get the same motion each time, it makes a lot of sense to create a logarithmic scale that's exactly the same for each lens. Also, the you know the way that the focusing works, you know, try to have as many degrees of turn as possible, especially between wide open and around T5.6 because that's generally where you live in cinematography. So all these things are thought of very carefully to put into a cinematography design. Nowadays, you do other things. You have to make decisions. You make choices. 
Do I want my lenses to get milky when I open them up wide open? Do I want the blacks to lift? And how much do I want the blacks to lift when I do that? Because nowadays we can really get dark and black with really deep matte black finish on the inside of the lens, for example. Zeiss is really known for that. And, yes. and I have to say that the contrast in particular in Zeiss lenses is legendary. And I'll repeat back to you a statistic that you probably already know, but uh, another very popular lens company paints the inside of all of their lenses to minimize the reflections. They, they paint it with one color of black. Another company, they use two colors of black. And generally, the, the thought between these different uh, black treatments is to attenuate the amount of reflected light. Zeiss, I know, will use up to seven different shades of black on the inside of their lenses to remove all the unwanted reflections and to get the absolute highest degree of contrast, which to the human eye looks like a much sharper image even if the lens isn't not technically sharper it's perceived as sharper because there's so much contrast is i mean there's more information so there's more levels of exposure from light to dark that actually get transmitted to the film plane so if you have film or, or sensor you're actually getting more information but it's not necessarily true that it's always the darkest, deepest black. If you look at Master Primes, when you mm. open them up to T13, for example, you get a little tinge of slightly brown in there, in in the blacks, and it lifts just a little bit. And people, using after using that lens over and over, it dials in this kind of cinematic look that they're looking for. So for a lot of people, a cinematic look includes decontrasting almost, mm. or lifting up the blacks a little bit. Also, how does your lens handle highlights? Depending on your iris design, the more blades you have, the rounder the bokeh, and the less that it calls attention to itself. And then when you design the iris blades, you have to be careful that you don't create onion skinning, so you don't have little circles inside the, the bokeh in the background that will take your attention away from what the actress is doing or the actress doing. So there's a lot of thought that goes into what you're trying to do. So the difference between, let's say, a Master Prime and, and a Supreme Prime, you know, a more modern lens, is that actually a Supreme Prime can transmit a higher levels of light to dark than a Master Prime can. Of course, we have much darker, deeper black paint, you know, 10 years later, 11 years later than we did uh, a decade ago, for sure, That's that we have access to. But we had to make choices. So we allow some CA. We allow certain time of reflectivity. You allow reflections in the magenta and the green. And that's the same color that the chromatic aberration can take on. You decide on your MTF curve, MTF meaning the performance from the center to the edge of your frame. How clean do you really want it? We're, we're not going to get into modulation transfer function in this, in this, <laughs> in this uh, interview. We're, but, you know, uh, MTF for anyone else who's listening out there, it ends up being a, a shorthand also for sharpness. The amount of resolution a lens is, is delivering across the field from, you know, from the center to, to the edge. How much how much is there? And Zeiss is one of the few companies actually that publishes their MTF curves, not not every company does that. And you can actually then, if you so wanted to, you know, uh, take a lens and and put it up into the real world and sort of see how the resolution does change at, at what point in the frame, which I, I think is really awesome. Yeah. And a really quick way to, to a shorthand to check this out in the real world is pop a CP3 onto a lens projector, which is also full frame capable, mm -hmm. and then pop a Supreme Prime of the same focal length. They're identical. No, I'm kidding. No, <laughs> no, no. You, you're going to get a little bit more fall off on the CP3. Yeah, it has a more well, you know, and the reason why is well, first of all, there's generally less glass, less uh, optics inside a CP3. It's a smaller design, much but much lighter, much yeah. lighter. Yeah, and it's more classic, so it's an older design. Mm -hmm. 
So we're using some optical designs within the CP3 range are like 60, 70 years old that have, you know are great optical designs that we're still using. But the fall off, the performance from the center of the frame to the edge of the frame uh, won't be as clean, let's say, as maybe a Supreme Prime. So some rental houses actually detune lenses. They take our Supreme Primes uh, and they detune them. And one of the things that they do is they change the air gap near the rear element which makes the focus fall off more drastically on the edges. So they're actually dumbing down or kind of softening the MTF curve just a little bit to kind of get a more interesting look because, you know, DPs want you to look in the center two-thirds of the frame. They don't necessarily want you to look at the edges for for information, right? It's good to know what's going on in the... You, know, you want to know that there's a building in the background, but you don't need to see what's inside the window, right? Like, you should be concentrating on the story and the movie. Yeah. There's a big problem if you're looking inside the window in the background of the building. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> then, you're watch, then you're watching sports or you're, yeah. watching, you know, you're watching something that's broadcast and it's not cinema. In cinema, it's all about the story, so you're guiding the eye as to where it has to look. That's why a lot of filtration is used, too, to kind of soften the edges of things or change things but what i what i feel like when cinematographers ask me i say well look with the supreme prime you get a lens with good characteristics that is still speaks to cinema is is a clean slate to start from that you can filter and use LUTs and your lighting and your capability you can make it look like anything you want i mean look at titan the movie that came out that's making a lot of buzz won the award at, at uh, con film festival it's gorgeous, and every scene is like lit so interestingly and different. But it's Supreme Primes, right? And and it all works, and it all works really well. But if you want, you know, you can get a more classic look with a CP3, a T21, Super Speeds, and then you start seeing different characteristics. I mean, if you go to Super Speeds, you're gonna see like your highlights. You can see little yellow and purple colors, you know, which are, are kind of cool. If you use like the Super Speed version of the CP2s, you're seeing the magenta and the green in the high highlights so it just depends and you don't want to make a terribly perfect lens i think uh you're more used to seeing more perfect lenses in the still lens line mm, that's uh -huh. when you're really trying to make it super clean because actually the resolution is much higher sure so you're going to see much more information and it's a still image so you know it's nice to see all the shades of color in someone's face when you're doing an ad campaign that's going to be in a magazine because that's really going to speak to that medium but in cinema you don't want to do that you want to soften it a bit you want to you want to calm it down you want you want just enough information to get across the story and the most important Important thing that you want when you're doing cinema, of course, is human eyes, you know, where the eye is looking and the eyelashes, because wherever the eye is looking is where you're going to look. And that's where all the motion is, too. Yeah. You bring up award shows. I mean, we're talking right now on the, the tale of the, the ASC Awards. You, you know, I, I didn't go this year. I know you were there. Do, I'm sure you were there in capacity for Zeiss. Did you have any uh, clients that uh, that took home uh, an award or were nominated for a, an award? Uh? Oh weekend? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like I mentioned, John Joffin before he he got the the award for uh, for Titans, and he absolutely deserves it. He's a consummate artist. I'm a big fan of his. Uh, Tommy Maddox, who recently shot with the Radiance for a Super Bowl commercial, he got an award. Great uh, for good. Snowfall. Nice. <laughs> so, oh, so for, uh, fantastic. He's fantastic a, yeah. shows. He's um, good, you know, good friend of a podcast. Can't yeah. be mad. Um, I have to say, I'm a big fan of Greg Frazier, and he knows this because I tell him all the time. Him and I are bor born on the exact same month of the same year. Wow. I've been following his career since I saw his short film. Everyone should watch this called Spider. It's mm. an Australian short film. It's like five minutes long or seven minutes long, but it's one of the most perfect short films I've ever seen. And since then, I was like, who is this? Who shot this? Like, he's like Chivo to me. Like, you know, I was like so interested in the first frame of his that I saw. So I follow him very closely. And I'm a big fan of Frank Herbert.
Herbert's Dune, uh, avid reader. I've read every book, um, mm-hmm. saw the first, I think, f- 15 versions probably of the first film. <laughs> and then on the sci-fi miniseries, mm-hmm. I was, I, I've seen three or four times. So I was so excited and giddy when I was in the IMAX theater and the Chinese Man Theater watching Dune on the big screen. I, I texted him right afterwards. But he won, so that was really cool. Yeah. That was awesome to see. I was really pleased to see Ellen Kuras. Yeah, uh, of course. Yeah. You, know, you know, people should watch her stuff. You know, a lot of times you don't hear about female DPs that do the big budget films, mm-hmm. but she she's kicked ass. Like, oh, can I say that? Can I say that? Yeah, can of course. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. She's she, kicked ass. She, uh, <laughs> she, uh, she's a good friend of our, our podcast. She's been on the podcast. It's actually, to this day, one of my favorite interviews nice. that we've ever done. I'm really uh, glad that they, they gave her that award. That That's that's tremendous. Yeah. So. But in my book, anyone who was nominated is a winner because the field is so large today. It's Ilya, true. Than yeah, ever it's before. True. We have the same amount of categories almost, except for the fact that now we add the streaming categories. But it's just another couple of awards. But there's not a lot of awards given. But there's so much more beautiful work out there and cinematic work <laughs> than there's ever been. Yeah, it's, it's got to be really hard, really hard for the voting. For the you know, I know some people just pick their friends, but if you're if you're really just working on on the work that's out there, there's so much good work being done. It's really so, it's really impressive. And all the clips that they show, I'm just like in awe. Like, yeah, wow, that's amazing. That's on TV. That's what? amazing. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's amazing. amazing. Yeah. that looks cool. How come I haven't seen that before? What's going on? That's a great show. Um, and then of course the fact that. In 2021, we actually had feature films. Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah. So that was pretty cool to see that come back again because 2020 was a terrible year for feature releases. It, it was rough, for it was sure. Rough. Hey, uh, you're here to drop a little bit of uh, you know an exclusive here, too. I mean, isn't there something uh, brand new that's happening with Zeiss, with uh, metadata? I know that these lenses that you guys, uh, you guys are putting all kinds of very clever data export tools essentially through your uh, certain series of your lenses and they're interfacing with cameras and I know that VFX people in particular are dictating and insisting now on Zeiss lenses for certain applications but you've got something new something that is not not out there yet. tell our listeners what what Zeiss is doing now yeah we have a, a new VFX software actually that can solve for you know when you're a VFX artist when you're on the back end and you get information from set, you could actually solve for a lot of lenses to get their distortion characteristics and exposure falloff characteristics. So as you might know already, and you mentioned it, with the Zeiss XD lenses like the CP3 XD, the Supreme Primes, and the Radiance, they carry this information already. They carry their distortion characteristics based on their focal distance. So whenever you focus, whatever mark you're on, you get the exact correct distortion characteristics that the lens is providing to the sensor or or the film plane. You also get shading characteristics or otherwise known as exposure fall off. That's the amount of exposure that falls off from center to edge. Uh, uh, Colloquially, uh, vignetting. But even though it's not a a full vignette, it's not not a hard black line, but technically people are talking about the amount of light fall off from the Mm -hmm. center. So the vignette, yeah. And every single lens in the whole world, you have exposure fall off once you start to go wide open. And you also have distortion. And and this is is something I don't think a lot of people think about, but Mm -hmm. the DSLR mirrorless camera manufacturers for years have been putting that correction built into... Uh, the camera body, so that as you're shooting, you don't even notice it's automatically making those corrections on your LED, LCD screen. Now, that so. works for a flat medium like photography. Mm-hmm. And for photography, like again, if you're using the magazine example, you do want clean edge to edge and you don't want anything to look distorted. But that's not the case in cinema. 
in cinema, you do want it to bend a little bit. You do want the f- uh, fall off. Like we said, we want to look in the center two thirds of the frame. So vignettes are pleasant. They're they're cinematic. They help you. So people like to use those kinds of artifacts actually to help tell their story. In fact, that's why vintage lenses are so popular. Quite frankly, is because they have these characteristics in spades. So there's nothing wrong with distortion. It's not that we want to correct it, but we want to give this information to the VFX artist because you can imagine that if you're doing a 3D layer of a flying car or something like that, you're going to create it flat inside your computer. But So you need to make it bend like the lens did. The only way you could do that is if you know the characteristics of that bend, of that distortion, for that lens at that particular focus mark. That's You have to know that information. And right now what happens in the industry is we shoot charts. And the charts are not that accurate. Unless you're at ILM doing like 12 different measurements of, a, of one focal length of lens, you might get more accuracy. But generally you don't. You get three or four focal distances, like four foot, 10 foot, 20 feet, send it off to a VFX artist. And they and have they, to extrapolate and they have to extrapolate. everything. Yeah. And, and then they never can. And they at the end of the day, they work 45 minutes on, on just trying to figure out what the distortion characteristic at the focus mark that you want. And then lo and behold, you do a focus pull from four to 14 feet and they have a three second shot and they got to do some graphics to that. It's not easy to figure out. So what we've done is we've solved that. What we've done is instead of making the camera record the shading and distortion characteristics, as long as you're tracking the focus and iris mark as per the the time code, either in camera, like within an Alexa, for example, or externally using a C-Motion, Preston, or Airy wireless system that actually records what it's doing because all these systems record metadata according to time code, you can pass that along. And this has already been done for years for visual effects. So any real visual effects film that has a decent budget, they're already trying to give this information to post. And that's going down the pipeline to the VFX artist. VFX artist gets an image sequence that is basically the shot that they're going to work on with handles. They get an offline file that shows them what the whole take looks like so they can go back and look at the slate to make sure they're using the right lens. And then they get notes about what the Focus and Iris is doing. And if they're lucky, they get a metadata file, like from the Alexa metadata extract, that's telling you exactly what the Ultra Prime, Master Prime, or Cook lens or whatever, what Focus and Iris point that it's at at that moment. We can take that information, whatever information you have, and now give you distortion and shading characteristics. We don't charge you. It's completely free if you're using any of our modern smart lenses that would have given you this data anyways, like Supreme Radiance or CP3XD. And we charge a nominal fee, and we allow you to do classic lenses. So mm. right now, we can do super speeds. You can do master prime, master anamorphic. We're adding ultra primes and master macro, and then T21s. So basically, we're going to go down in history and try to get all the Zeiss lenses that are used for cinema into this system so that no matter what Zeiss lens you use, you can get the exact solve that you want. Wow. That really sounds like VFX people in particular are really going to gravitate toward this. You also mentioned volume. I would say that anyone who's probably uh, working in sort of that, that virtual stage space has to be thinking about how much easier this is than having to do all the early uh, pre-work that you would otherwise be, be doing. So actually, can you tell me a little bit about how uh, what you're doing right now is fitting into the whole virtual volume spaces that are being used on so many shows? Yeah, absolutely. Like, well, virtual production is both the use of green screen and nowadays LED screens. But the idea is that you have a camera tracker, right? That knows the position of your camera and what angle it's pointed 
Uh, it also knows what focal length lens you're using and what focal distance you're using. If you're using a zoom or a prime, it knows all this stuff. It's a very smart system. Um, there's multiple companies that, that use this. And this allows you to basically pre-vis in real life, right? So you could have a green screen, for example, but on your monitors, you can see the world that you're creating. You could either do a pre-visualization or something that they do in broadcast for like sports is the final image. They can actually just drop in a background backdrop behind you and you're a football player and you're introducing, you know, something saying something for the, the game and they could just record you and they have a final image. They don't have to go, they, you know, they, they basically key the background. They can move the camera around and when they move the camera, the, the background will react correctly to look correct. Because remember, these backgrounds are pretty close to the actors, but sometimes you're emulating things that are very far away. So because of that, you have to kind of shift things around in the background uh, left, right, up, or down to make it look like they're actually further away. Because when you pan your camera, if it's closer, that object's going to move too quickly. <laughs> so you have to make sure that it makes it look like that this, you know, the mountain's far, really far away from you, behind you. So the, the camera tricks that you can do with virtual production are endless. And nowadays, a lot of people use volumes, which are LED screens, where the actor can actually feel like, oh, I'm surrounded in this mountainscape or, you know, I am a Mandalorian, you know, <laughs> fighting in this battle on, on Tatooine. And they really, it's, it's visceral. It's much better performance you can get because it feels like you're really there. And plus the camera sees it right away. Um, we've been using LED technology like PRG, for example, has been doing car stuff for like a decade, you know, so it's been around. It's just maturing more. And it's not just about just throwing up a background that's out of focus. It's actually now you can actually have detailed backgrounds that make a lot of sense that then you could throw a little bit out of focus to match the characteristics that you would get in real life. And they look very realistic and they match the camera moves. So virtual production is all about the amalgamation of the camera tracking, the camera move, the lensing, and then also the background and then the foreground working together. So it's, it's a really a new field that's growing quickly. Um, everyone's trying to figure it out. I mean, Simti's trying to figure it out and all these organizations are forming to kind of bring some standardization because right now it's a DIY thing. Every, every stage has got its own method. How I, do it. I think it's getting a little bit better than the, the crudest expression of DIY. It's real professionals who are putting real huge amounts of effort and time and everything, but you're correct. Nothing standardized. Uh, in the ASC Tech Committee stuff uh, I do for, for LEDs, the LED walls f certainly fall into all of this. And it has just changed so much and improved so fast in the last decade. So fast. Like, I remember going out to do camera tests with John Toll for Sense8 years and years mm -hmm. ago. They wanted to look at a particular camera I had access to. I brought it in. They, we we did, did a whole battery of tests. And I remember they had their LED walls set up for, like, for driving shots and stuff like that. And I'd seen it before, but I'd never seen the LEDs with the pixel pitch so close together and I was like holy crap how far does the camera have to be and they were like it, it only has to be 17 feet or whatever it was it didn't right. have, to, have to be very far and now the pitch on these LED walls is so close together mm -hmm. it's like all of that is 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 out the window it's like they can be so much more close they can do all this stuff and all of those LED pixels all kind of just merge and blend into one I can't wait to see what it's going to be in a few years because I'm sure it's going to be even more astounding and you know we've had Greg Frazier and other people on the show talking about you know the whole process of this and it is early days but I am impressed that how quickly it's come and I happen to know that there's a lot of different stages right now that are all investing in this putting this in figuring it out and 
on one hand, I'm kind of like, well, you know, that's great, but I know in a couple of years it's going to be even better, but, <laughs> but the work is now, the time is now. And yep. I will tell you that even if there isn't standardized processes, I know the stuff that like pre-pandemic we were doing at the ASC and elsewhere, that is going to become a real thing. It is not a fad like 3D. It's not, no. a, it is not something that is here today, gone tomorrow. That not sort of production, I think you're going to see it happening more and more places and it's going to drive down production costs and we're going to see it used in all kinds of things. Things that you never thought you'd you'd see it before. It's not just for Tom Cruise Oblivion movies, which was another you know which famous, is great, which is great, nice the application, yeah, absolutely. Sure. And they did an incredible thing. But it's like I predict it's going to be the very very small movies that are also taking advantage of this in the near future and everything in between. Just think of it simply like this: like there's so many sets that are built up around all these stages. Let's say Disney or Warner Brothers or Universal that have uh, static photo backgrounds. Yeah. Right? For, oh, for yeah. the outside of like a sitcom. No longer. But that's not going to happen. In that's the future, right. <laughs> that's all going to be LED. The translate. dynamic. Yeah. Oh, it's gonna, yeah. The translate backgrounds are going to be dynamic LEDs at some point. And, you know, it, it's quite expensive to make those translites. And then you have to actually backlight them too. Yes. And that has a whole expense associated there's with it. Got, there's got, there's not just an expense, but there's heat. There's all kinds of things. I mean, back in the day, of course, you lit it more with tungsten and, and HMIs and stuff. And now you can do it with LED. So it's a little bit better. But it's, it, you know, it's static. Mm. It's not moving, and you can't. There's no birds flying or anything like that. No, but you could do that now. Twinkling and, lights. Yeah, yeah. Anything, you could yeah. do that. Uh, other things are like, for example, you know, you you can do like an outdoor location, and let's say a family sitting around a picnic table, but now you can have that daylight in the in the same position for hours. So you could actually do all your coverage of all the six members of the family without worrying about the fact that wow, and I have to keep relighting this to to match. And if you shot like real footage of cars driving by in a mm-hmm. background or something now it's no longer a CG. It no. literally is like you hit play and then voila, you did the scene and there's that car, there's that thing, whatever it's the new to, rear projection. It is, it it's is the, the new, new rear projection. But it, but it goes even beyond that. It's really amazing. I firmly believe that the DIY solution to volumes is coming and before you know it you'll have indie filmmakers in their garage or oh, yeah. in, in a spare room in their house They're already who, doing it, yeah, yeah. who are turning them into LED walls and projections places in order to to try to uh, to leverage technology to make their movie yeah and it's it's better than green screen because green screen's got spill and it takes a lot of work to get rid of that spill I mean of course we do it with a lot of plugins and tools now but it's nothing's perfect so it's much better. And now you can use green in your costumes. <laughs> you could actually have that same neon green and, and you can run with it or you don't you don't have to do blue screen or something like that. And I think that that, that itself is a benefit. And then also uh, cameras will get better and they'll have more Z-depth information. Uh, well, hey, we're falling really far afield here of what we're here to talk about, but I, I'm really enjoying this conversation. Before we kind of wrap it up, Snehal, if you can talk about it, where do you see the cinema lens industry going? What's next on the horizon? I know that we, we just talked a lot about VFX and the VFX mm-hmm. and the analog world sort of feeding together. But from your perspective, where are we headed? Choices. For the cinematographer, let's not even worry about the manufacturing side because we will always serve the cinematography community. We will listen as much as we can. The Radiance Lenses is a a testament to that for Zeiss. We listened, we heard, and we created a lens that was very interesting looking, that has cool flare characteristics, specifically because that's what cinematographers want. They want blue flares with a warm skin tone. And that's what we did in spades with a nice set of lenses. Everyone should continue to do that, go down that path. Uh, I'm seeing all kinds of other manufacturers doing very interesting stuff, and I'm watching a lot of work shot by a lot of cinematographers. They've never had so many choices of paintbrushes before in their in, in the lifetime of cinema filmmaking. There's never been this much choice before. 
The choices were very few and far between back in the day. And now there's so many different manufacturers, but the manufacturers also have so many different lines of lenses that you can choose from. So if you're a fan of a certain type of brand or something, you can choose so many different types of lenses, anamorphic, spherical, wide lenses, telephoto. You got so many focal lengths. You also have formats like any lens that works in full frame, of course, will work in Super 35, but you have lenses that specifically work just in Super 35. You have certain type of characteristics. You have certain lenses you can modify to create different flare characteristics or different looks. You can add filtration on the back of them. There's so much choice out there. And I think that we're going to hone into these choices and start coming up with things that may be harken back to certain things that worked before and we bring it back, you know, bringing back vintage looks and things like that, but also new things where I think it's going to get very experimental and you're going to see lenses do new things that they never did before. And I think that's the exciting thing about working in this industry is, is trying to come up with the next new thing that works, that helps the cinematic language. Because at the end of the day, a cinematographer has an idea in their head and they want to put it on the screen and they want to translate the story into that idea. And it doesn't matter if you're a student starting out or you've been in the industry for 45, 50 years as a cinema, working cinematographer most of your life. There's, you're always wanting something new. The best cinematographers are always saying they're trying the newest thing. They're learning whatever they can because it's a full-time learning process from start to finish of their career. So I think that trying to excite them with something different, something new is always great. And, and allows them to tell their stories better. So I do feel that there probably will be more manufacturers that get into the game. Some will survive, some will find it hard because it is a tough game, but I think that there'll be a lot of innovation. And I think that the ones that are gonna get served the best are the people that are the other, other end of the camera, the cinematographers. They have the plethora of choices and such a field in front of them. And that's wonderful because honestly, I mean, this is why you and I do this job, right? We're here to support the artists. So we love it when there's a smile on their face and they're excited about something or we watch something of theirs and, and we're into the show. Uh, my favorite shows are, of course, where I completely forget about the technical <laughs> altogether. Sure. And you're just into the story. And then later on, you're like, wait a minute, how'd they make that? You know, and then you want to go back and learn about it. I think that's 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 always a, a testament to that was a job well done. So I'm excited that there's so much more coming out. I am as well. And just the last couple moments that I've, I've got you here, where can people track down? I mean, I know that the pandemic is still going on, but the world is sort of emerging now. And I know NAB is back and the Portland Lens Summit is coming up. And of course, your office in Sherman Oaks opened by appointment. Where can people get a hold of you if they want to interact with you in person? You're going to be at the office. You're going to be at NAB. You're going to be at Portland <laughs> Lens Summit. What's your, what's your sort of schedule like coming up here? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be everywhere. Um, so the next things that are coming up are going to be NAB. In April, we'll be at the Lens Summit in May, Pacific Northwest Lens Summit at Kerner Camera in Portland. We'll be at Cinegear in downtown LA uh, coming up in the summertime. Uh, we'll also be at the ABC show in Brazil in uh, May as well, at the end of May. So that's coming up and that's really exciting. And then in Canada, we're going to have Jean-Marc, my colleague, who's the sales director on the East Coast. He's going to be going up to Canada and making visits up there. So that's really wonderful. But you can always contact us. Just go to zeiss.com forward slash cine, C-I-N-E. You will find a renter locator there, a dealer locator. You also find a link for our Cinema Lens Demo Center in Sherman Oaks, California, which is you know just in, in LA proper. And anytime you're visiting, send us a note and we'll set up an appointment for you. Or if you're local, you're welcome anytime. We'd love to have you in and we'll give you some personal attention. And you could also email us from the website as well. 
and reach out and uh, we'll let you know. My personal email is snehal, S-N-E-H-A-L dot Patel, P-A-T-E-L at Zeiss.com. And for all cinematographers out there, we will help you worldwide. And it doesn't matter what lens you use. It doesn't have to be a Zeiss lens. Whatever project you're on, anytime you have some trouble, you need some recommendations for rental houses, some help for anything, or you just want to know something optical and want some advice, please reach out. We'd love to help you out. Wow. I, di- I didn't even get, I was going to ask you for like your Instagram and stuff next, but you know, <laughs> you've, you've given us, you went ahead and gave it your email. Uh, anyone who didn't write that down, you can go to the show notes at camnoir.com and we're going to have Snayhill's email there. We're going to have all the contact for the Zeiss Center in Sherman Oaks. And of course, if you ever want to buy anything that's made by Zeiss, you should hit up your good friends over here at Hot Rod Cameras. We will be happy to help you out with that purchase. Uh, Snayhill, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, we have been friends for a long time, Ilya. And it's such a pleasure to be here with you and just chat about this kind of stuff. We do it anyways, but it's nice to actually record it and, and share it. Yeah, I think make, this is make it formal. Do it, do it for everybody. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad we did it. This All was right. a great experience. Thank you so much. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.